Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost? I'm your host SNS. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 12. Stephen, what can you tell me about the murder hotel? I am going to say that it's a hotel, a guest stayed there once upon a time, and people were murdered in or around the area. That's all I know. Well, then that's the end of the show. Exit jingle. (laughs) So today we are going to cover H.H. Holmes, and I will put all the sources into the description on the episode. Do we crack on? Crackity crack. So although this would make a great episode, we have not changed over to a true crime podcast, but we can't discuss the home of H.H. Holmes without getting into the true crime part of it. I'm a huge believer in residual energy, And when enough grief, pain and anger occurs in a home, I believe that the energy soaks into the walls. The 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, known at the time as the Columbian Exhibition, celebrated the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the Americas. The enormous exhibition featured many wondrous exhibits, including the United States' first gas-powered motor car, the Daimler quadricycle, and a 1,500 pound statue of the Venus de Milo made entirely of chocolate. However, the World's Fair became better known for a structure that was more gruesome than organizers could have imagined. The so-called murder castle of H.H. Holmes, America's first documented serial killer. However, when Holmes was finally arrested, the newspapers sensationalized the story. And from there, it is nearly impossible to tell fact from fiction. So let's start from the beginning. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett on May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Herman's parents, Levi and Theodette Mudgett, were descendants from the first English immigrants in the area. By all accounts, Herman's youth was relatively normal and unremarkable. His parents were thought to be upright, respectable, church-going folk. None of their neighbours or extended family members had anything bad to say about them. Even Herman himself was considered to be a quiet and studious young man. But of course, some had some doubts as to whether Herman was as perfect as everyone thought. Described as a bit of a loner, he always seemed to be by himself and would wander off alone on long walks while the boys all played. He was very secretive. Herman was said to be an exceptionally hard worker, but a cobbler who worked with him had said that he had a lust for money that he found that he didn't like about his character. Herman had stolen 43 cents from a cobbler's vest pocket and also tried to be paid twice for the same work. By the time Herman was 16, he graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and started working odd jobs as well as a teacher job in Gilmanton. Herman then met Clara A. Lovering and they married July 4, 1878, at the age of 18. Clara's family were not best pleased at the speed at which their relationship progressed, but Herman was family now, so they set him up with a job, working in Clara's uncle's grocery store. On February 3rd, 1880, Robert Lovering Mudgett, the couple's firstborn, came along. Herman thought to himself at this time he didn't want to work as a clerk forever. He had a keen interest in medicine. In his autobiography, H.H. H. Holmes spoke of a story from his childhood where two older boys had dragged him into the doctor's office. They stood him face to face with an actual skeleton. Little Herman was terrified yet fascinated at the same time. It was this moment that sparked his interest in human anatomy. Years later, Herman became an apprentice under a doctor in that very office. He then took up a course at the University of Vermont in Burlington, but he was dissatisfied with the course, so he dropped out a year later. And then in 1882, Herman entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. 
He graduated here in June 1884, but only just. A widowed hairdresser accused him of making a false promise of marriage to her. So-called breach of promise was a serious crime back then, but Herman denied the allegation until after his graduation, when he then told his professor the accusation was true. College was indeed a learning time for Herman, and not just his formal education. It was during this time in school that Herman and his friends first came up with the idea of faking someone's death and using a substitute body to defraud an insurance company. This idea would live with Herman in his mind for years to come as he grew into a devious con artist. As an adult, some accounts say Herman abandoned his wife and young child in 1885 to move to Illinois. Other reports say she moved away from him, as the marriage was said to be very abusive. Clara never received divorce papers, so the two technically stayed married. You'll see why I mention this as the story goes on. Once in Illinois, Herman changed his name to Holmes, reportedly as an accolade to the fictional English detective Sherlock Holmes. So from here, we'll refer to him as Holmes. Soon after he arrived in the Chicago area, Holmes took up work at a pharmacy located near Jackson Park. Now, many accounts say the couple who owned the pharmacy, the Holtons, were elderly and Holmes had killed them and took the pharmacy. When in fact, the couple were in their 20s when Holmes bought the pharmacy and were still alive, well, and living in the area when Holmes was arrested years later. Nevertheless, not long after, Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the pharmacy at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. This would soon be the very spot that he would construct the building soon to be known as the Murder Hotel or the Murder Castle. Continuing to use the name Holmes, he married Miss Martha Belcap in Chicago on January 28, 1887. But then as the years went on, he also married Minnie Williams in 1893 and Georgiana Yoke in 1894, adding bigamy to his repertoire. The building was constructed between 1889 and 1891. He hired and fired numerous crews during the construction period, so no one person knew the exact layout of the building. Well, no one except Holmes. The building was originally two stories high. It was built with storefront space on the ground floor and apartments above. Holmes moved into one of these apartments with his second wife and went on to add a third story. Once the building was completed, the story goes that Holmes began placing classified ads for jobs for young women, as well as advertising the hotel as a place to stay. The hotel's employees and guests were also required to have life insurance policies, and Holmes himself paid the premium, provided that they list him as the beneficiary. When the World's Fair came to Chicago, it drew tourists from all around the world. The story goes that Holmes Castle was billed as the World's Fair Hotel. The event attracted more than 27 million visitors to Chicago, an incredible number considering the limited transportation options of the time. Holmes took advantage of some of the many visitors to the city, including young women who came to Chicago for jobs at the fairgrounds. Holmes himself would often wander the fairgrounds, train stations and other hotels offering potential guests a stay at his hotel, which was closer to the fairgrounds, had cheaper rates and much nicer accommodations. Unfortunately, many of the guests that stayed in the hotel were never heard from again. Many of these victims, no one knows for certain the total number, were women who were seduced, swindled and then killed. Holmes had a habit of getting engaged to women, only for his fiancé to suddenly disappear. Young Emmeline Sigrand relocated to Chicago after Holmes offered her a position as his personal secretary that paid three times the average salary for this line of work. 
She arrived with $800 in savings and it wasn't long before Holmes managed to get his hand on the money, claiming it would be invested well. Things eventually turned sour and Emmeline told a neighbour she was heading back home. That was the last time anyone had seen her alive. A female footprint was later discovered etched into the door of the vault in the basement. In The Devil in the White City, author Eric Larson explains, The best guess said that Holmes had lured a woman into the vault, that the woman was shoeless at the time, perhaps nude, and that Holmes had closed the airtight door to lock her inside. It's believed that Holmes had poured acid into the floor of the vault to hasten the consumption of oxygen. The theory is that Emmeline stepped in the acid and kicked the vault door in a final attempt to save her own life. The footprint was a chilling reminder of the real-life horrors that took place within the hotel walls. One story mentions that inside Holmes' castle, the rooms could not be locked from the inside, only outside. Everything was lit with gas lamps given the era, but what was odd was the connections to the gas lamps. They were outside the room, set up so that Holmes could turn on the gas and asphyxiate people at will. There were reports that the building also had a lot of strange oddities to it when it was built. Some doors and stairwells led to nowhere and had hidden and closed rooms throughout the building. Furniture suppliers were not paid for products Holmes ordered and it was thought that he hid the furnishings in secret rooms. Stories claims that part of the walls moved and some chutes led down to the basement. In a December 1943 article for Harper's Magazine, writer John Bartlow Martin used the most gruesome terms to describe the basement. The cellar was perhaps the most remarkable section of the building. It was fitted with operating tables, a crematory, pits containing quicklime and acids, surgical instruments and various pieces of apparatus which, resembling medieval torture acts, never were satisfactorily explained. Some thought Holmes used these appliances to wring from his victims the whereabouts of their wealth. Others said he used them in experiments which he hoped to prove his pet theory that the human body could be stretched indefinitely, a treatment that ultimately would produce a race of giants. Holmes sometimes destroyed the bodies of his victims completely, sometimes aided by a needy skeleton articulator who answered his advertisement in the paper. He stripped the flesh from their bones and sold the skeletons to medical institutions. Holmes left Chicago for Texas and then St. Louis. He was arrested and jailed for a swindling operation involving the sale of stolen horses. While in jail, Holmes got to talking to his cellmate, an outlaw, Marion Hedgepath, also known as the Handsome Bandit. They discussed setting up an insurance scam where Holmes would take out a $10,000 policy on his own life and then fake his death. After being released on bail, Holmes tried to take out a policy but the insurance company became suspicious. So Holmes instead went to Philadelphia and concocted a similar scheme with his lifelong business partner, Benjamin Pitzel. But Holmes killed Pitzel and went on to kill Pitzel's three children. The bodies of his daughter, Alice and Nellie were found buried in Toronto and the body of his son, Howard, in Indianapolis, multiple accounts say. Holmes was tried and convicted of Ben Pitzel's murder and was hanged in a public execution at Moyamintzing Prison in Philadelphia on May 7, 1896. Needless to say, Holmes was the definition of evil. But my thoughts are, if he was known to steal at a young age, be abusive to his first wife, send her running or abandon her and his young son, whichever version, bigamy, dishonesty, more theft, murder, lots more murder, and all the while lining his pockets with the expenses of others, it's really not hard to imagine what went on behind closed doors. If you go to the corner of 63rd and Wallace Street in Inglewood community today, you'll find the US post office. The post office does not stand perfectly on the footprint of the earlier building. 
it would have encompassed the eastern part of the present-day post office footprint and the grassy knoll that separates the post office from the freight train embankment. One postal employee shared her haunting experience. She entered a hallway while investigating a strange noise, only to find a hallway lined with folding chairs. She retreated to the lobby and then upon returning to the hallway, found the line of chairs had mysteriously stacked itself. There have been several other reports from post office employees of seeing a ghostly figure of a woman in the building or outside in the courtyard where the murder castle once stood. Visitors report hearing a haunting sound of a woman humming or singing in unoccupied areas of the building. Strange whispers and voices from the basement, extremely cold temperatures throughout the building, and the faces of some of the victims appearing on the walls in the basement. So is it possible that some of his victims don't know that the World's Fair has ended, that Holmes has left, and that they are free to leave, or are they still trapped there reliving the torture and torment? What's worse is that even after Holmes was executed, death still followed him. The man who had initially tipped off the police to H.H. H. Holmes' illegal dealings was shot by a Chicago police officer. The warden at the prison where Holmes had been held had killed himself. The office of the district attorney, who argued the famous case, caught fire. And Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of the castle who, after Holmes, knew the most about the haunted building, died by suicide in 1914. He left a one-sentence note. I could not sleep. Shortly before his death in 1896, H.H. H. Holmes suggested that he was turning into the devil. Even his face, he said, was taking on a demonic look. Articles today can play it down and say it was only 10 and not 200 people, and you can blame the press for embellishing the story to sell papers. But while in captivity, awaiting his trial and sentencing, Holmes authored an autobiography, and in his own words he wrote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. So don't be surprised if there's nothing mythical or embellished about this story. And maybe H.H. H. Holmes really was the devil. What do you think about that? <coughs> that was a good one. <laughs> um, Please be aware that both of us are really sick at the moment. Who would play H.H. H. Holmes? See, I have Detective Holmes in my head and... Bumble Bat Cumble Nuts. <laughs> Bumble Bat Cumberbun. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't, he he plays Holmes, the real Holmes. Uh, so we have to get somebody else. So no, I have to disagree. I think Robert Downey Jr. played a better Holmes. No. Well, you're wrong then. He definitely played a better Holmes. And I think he could pull off the crazy a little bit better as well. So Heath Ledger needs to play this guy. I'm aware of the <laughs> pending situation. Um, I thought it was a good one. I like. Is any of the building left? The I will actually. Do you know what? I'll Google the, you. You Google, Google me. You. What will come up if I Google you, Stephen? Uh, dear wife, um, please don't Google me. <laughs> the reason I'm asking is there anything left of it? Is the basement. Sorry, the basement. basement. So is that where the is it the, the post office went and she. The chairs moved and then they could see faces in the walls and things like that. Yeah. So do you reckon that, remember they had, they talked about possibly one of the victims being trapped in there with acid. Do you reckon that like, <laughs> they etched faces into the wall when they were trying to escape or something? Oh, I didn't know you were going to go with that. And then depending on the temperature or the humidity at whatever time that people happen to be in there, they, they, it's kind of like, I don't want to play it down, but the chemicals in the magic marker, you know, the way they can come and go. Uh, depending on heat and stuff like that. They could have 
they could have been like, well, here lies the people who have died in this room, or they etched their own face in or something. Yeah. But I mean, maybe it could be real ghosts, though. I That's thought you were going to go down the drug route with the acid. Well, I'm making my way towards it. <laughs> I knew it would find its way in. So I'm just showing Stephen a picture here. This is the post office here. But this is where the original, I did find a video today and it had like a shadow or like a very transparent picture of the hotel. So all under here is where the basement would have been. So this sits on half of what the hotel would have been. Okay. Because in the old pictures and in these pictures, if I got to you side by side better, you can see the elevated train track. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so underneath here would be where the basement would have been. But it's not a part that the public can go in and tour. Like you can walk into the post office and you can ask them, oh, can I see what you can show me? But there's parts that they just won't let people into because they're afraid to go into them. So they're actually quite dangerous. They have been reinforced. But yeah, a couple of weeks after H.H. Holmes was hung, it said that arsonists came in and tried to burn the place down. They managed to do quite a lot of damage to the top two floors, I think, or the top floor. And then the rest of the building was torn down in the 1900s. Who, what, why, where, um, I have a question. <laughs> what did he get hung for? Who, he was, it was obviously murder he got hung for. Was it multiple or just one person? He was initially arrested because he had, st- he had sold a stolen horse. Yeah. So the initial arrest was the theft. Then he was up for the defraudment. And then initially the plan with his partner, because I couldn't write everything into this, because it's it's very true crime if you go too, too in detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically himself and his partner had come up with this plan sure. where they would... Fake his ass. Yeah, exactly. His wife was in on it no. and his 14-year-old daughter was in on it. So she would have to go and identify the body. But what nobody knew was that he didn't want to share the money with his partner. He killed his he partner. He didn't have to fake anybody's death. He no. had the real death. But then the daughter and the son and the other daughter were never given back to the mom. And then the mom ended up going absolutely crazy. She was like, please, I need to speak with my husband. I need to speak with my kids. And then when the insurance company started to investigate him, they found all these letters between his partner's wife and him and her pleading to speak with the husband. So they knew that there was something up. And then he ended up getting done for murdering his old partner. You know, stabby, stabby in the back. Ah, and then when he was when he was in jail waiting to be home, he obviously wrote his memoir, mem- memoir of memoir. a murder geisha. Yeah, but I think he I think he knew he was going to get home, and he figured if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out with a bang. And a lot of the stories of how many people he killed were stories that he kind of you know razzled dazzled a little bit. And then obviously the part that you read out there for me that was an account of someone who actually went down and l- looked at it. What other questions have we got? I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing other than it was drugs. Yeah, um, definitely the acid. That'll do it. That's actually really sad, though, when I read that, because I only read that. I, I looked for a couple of new things today to see if I could have more factual information, because the fact and fiction in this story is quite hard to pull apart. But, you know, the way, like, the house in Home Alone is the only one that comes to mind. The way they on the third floor have, like, a laundry chute. Yeah. He had a laundry chute, but it's where he used to, like finish off with whatever it was that he wanted to do with all these bodies and instead of hauling them like in a wheelbarrow through these corridors while he still had active guests staying in the hotel he used to just throw them down this chute or sometimes like he was very experimental I'm, I'm apologizing in advance to my sister she hates stuff like this he was fascinated with anatomy and he wanted to understand how things happened and how how death kind of occurred and at some stage he'd throw them down the chute and hang them and look at the effects of their neck snapping and the ironic part is, when he was hung, his neck didn't snap. 
and it took him about 20 minutes to die. And I just, I was just, Wah. and then the fact that it's actually in some of the pictures, I was just like, I don't need to see that. No. Oh, I want to see. Show me the pictures. <laughs> I'll show you here. Hang on. So these were all the shop fronts. These were all apartments. And then these were all supposed to be hotel rooms. There's a fair amount of them. Yeah, because... Oh, it goes back. That's the front. There's, there's this the... is the front part. So there's three rooms there. Yeah. And then there's three rooms there. And then there's three rooms there. But the way it's laid out, this room has no windows. This room has no windows. This corridor, that's fine. This room has no windows. Tons of these rooms have no windows. Some of them are steel clad. So they're completely airtight. This was the chute. Yeah, chute from roof to basement. So you'd literally throw someone from there. I thought the uh, the castle, or not the castle, sorry, the cartoon rendition was pretty good. Here you can see that he has a bathroom. And in his bathroom, he has secret stairways. Did you? So he'd kill a someone. Secret stairway and a dead woman in his bathroom. Yeah, yeah, he'd kill someone in the bathroom. And then he'd drag them down the stairs. And nobody would be too concerned about the spells. No. No, because, again, all it's these rooms were... This is literally like a really dark version of Where's Wally. Mm. Any other questions for me, Stephen? No. I know it was a little bit more true crime than what we normally cover, which is hilarious because I actually don't have the stomach for true crime. I love listening to true crime, but as the girls on uh, Murder Most Irish say, they don't go into detail about a lot of the crime, but you still have to read that to know what to leave out and what to put in. And I just don't have the stomach for it. So I know it was a little bit more true crime than we normally cover, but it was the stuff afterwards. Like, that's your place of work. And it used to be, like, a place where people would be tortured just to see how far they could be stretched. Like, I don't get that. That's very medieval. I don't like it. Not for me. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Nothing else? No. I think we'll finish up there, so. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Again, I'll put all the sources into the description. If you have any comments or recommendations for us, DM us on our Instagram. It's what's the story ghost if you have any personal stories or experiences that you would like to uh, send us our email is what's the story ghost at gmail.com exit jingle we will like this jingle am I allowed to say I'm, I'm exit jingling you are jingling sorry my apologies go again I promise I won't talk I won't talk go exit jingle <laughs> exit jingle bye <laughs>